to Proverbs chapter 29, Proverbs 29, and we want everybody to be able to follow along, so the fellows have some Bibles, they're going to make their way down the aisle, if you need a Bible, just get their attention, they'll get one to you, so you can look at Proverbs chapter 29 with us. I read the story recently of a fellow who was recounting his high school years, those very insecure and awkward high school years that we all can remember. And he was a senior. He had done fairly well academically in high school, and he was up for an award at the end of the year awards assembly. There were about 2,000 people in the high school auditorium, and he was scared to death that he was actually going to get an award because he didn't want to go up in front of anybody. Would he, as he walked up the stairs, would he, would he slip and fall? Did he have the right clothes on? Would people make fun of him? Does his hair look right? Everything is racing through his mind. And he recounts how he prayed to the Lord, Lord, don't let me get this award. And then the moment came for the award for which he was a nominee to be announced. And they went through a description that sounded not exactly like him, but very close. And then they announced the name. And they paused for a moment, and then they gave a name different than his. Somebody else won the award. And you would think that he would have immediately said, Lord, thank you for answering my prayer. But then what he thought was, so why did he get it? And now what's everybody going to think of me? They all knew I had been nominated for this thing. Now I look like a miserable failure. I want to be the talk of the school. And he began to go through in his mind the things that he would say in justification for why he didn't get the award. When the question is asked, he would simply say, you know, I just didn't try that hard. I could have done, gotten the award if I simply had put my mind to it. I'm certainly smarter than that guy is. And on it goes. You know, the truth of the matter is, we are, are we not, a real mess. On the one hand, we are so insecure that we think about ourselves and focus on ourselves virtually all the time. And it affects us in so very many ways. And yet the perversity of our hearts is such that we still want attention. On the one hand, we don't want it. On the other hand, we do want it. And that both sides have one thing in common. It is all about us. We want to be well thought of so people can cause us to lie, to get angry, to become depressed, and it affects you through every phase of life. Teenage years. We call it peer pressure. We all remember the peer pressure of the teenage years, don't we? You had to have just the right brand name that everyone else had. And if you didn't have that, you weren't going to fit in. You, had, you would come and tell your parents, I need these $100 pair of tennis shoes. It's not I want these, I absolutely must have these. Why? Because the peer pressure of other folks is so pressure, precious even in those teen years. And so one teen said to a counselor, listen, Mr. Thomas, you don't wear Walmart to high school. 
I heard the story of three boys that were talking and bragging about how much their dads make. Again, we want to be well thought of. My dad makes more than your dad. And so these three boys are bragging about that. One of the boys' dad was a doctor, and he said, my dad's a doctor. He makes so much money that we have three houses in different parts of the country. And the next boy said, that's nothing. My dad's a lawyer, and we've been on exotic vacations all over the world. And the third kid's dad was a pastor. What's he going to say? But he was a quick-thinking kid, and so he said, that's nothing. My dad makes so much money, it takes five guys to carry it out. (laughs) But why did we, we all did that, didn't we? My dad's stronger than your dad. Because we want to be well thought of. What people think about us matters, and very often it matters too much. So much so that they have the power to cause us to do things that we might not otherwise do. And as we look at teenagers engaged in this peer pressure, we say, well, they're insecure and they're afraid of what people might think of them. But of course, it's not just teens who are insecure and who are overly concerned with what others think about them. Those insecure, fearful kids grow up and they get married and they obtain jobs. And when you get to be 18 or 21, you don't automatically get over those fears, do you? The crowd generally changes, though it may take a while for some to grow up. But the pressure to conform and to get our validation from others does not change. And though the people in our lives may come and go, the constant for many of us is that we are controlled by people, controlled by what people think, controlled by what people can do to us or what we perceive that they can do to us. And so we find our joy. And we find our well-being and we find our satisfaction in what others think or do or fail to do. I can't tell you how many times I have counseled someone who wouldn't say exactly these words, but in effect, this is the way they live their lives. I can't be joyful in Jesus until so-and-so gets their act together. I can't do what Christ tells me to do until somebody else does fill in the blank. I'm angry all the time because I've got this situation with this person. This malady of the approval of others and therefore the control of others over us is one that affects all of us, every last one of us. Ed Welsh, in his excellent book, When People Are Big and God is Small, I recommend that book to you. We may have some copies on our resource table. If we don't, we can order them. So let the resource table folks know you'd like one if that's the case. But just listen to this list of different categories of peer pressure and people-pleasing that all of us go through in various stages. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? It's simply a euphemism for what the Bible calls the fear of man. If you experienced it when you were younger... He says, believe me, it's still there. It may be submerged and revealed in more adult ways, or it may be camouflaged by your impressive resume, your perceived successes. Are you overcommitted? 
Do you find that it's hard to say no even when wisdom indicates that you should? You are a people pleaser. Another euphemism for the fear of man. Do you, quote, need something from your spouse? Do you, quote, need your spouse to listen to you, to respect you? Think carefully here, he says. Certainly God is pleased when there's good communication and mutual honor between spouses. But for many people, the desire for these things has roots in something that's far from God's design for his image bearers. Unless we begin to understand the biblical parameters of what marital commitment is, then your spouse will become the one you fear. Your spouse will control you. Your spouse will quietly take the place of God in your life. Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? This, at least in the United States, is the most popular way that the fear of other people is expressed, he says. If self-esteem is a recurring theme for you, chances are that your life revolves around what other people think. You reverence or fear their opinions. You need them to buttress your sense of well-being and identity. You need them to fill you up. Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? I can't speak up at community group. I can't say anything because people will think, right? People will think I don't know the Bible as well as they do. Okay. But how many of us think that? I can't pray in front of anyone because my prayers aren't as eloquent as Somebody else's fear of man. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think about the decision that you made? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? I've seen this over and over again in the lives of adult people, otherwise successful people, who you would think would have no trouble just making the call, pulling the trigger, as it were, on a decision, but are afraid to, very often because... It may not turn out right. And if it doesn't turn out right and my name is on it, it's another form of this. It's saying, I told you so. I hear this very often because we want to be respected. We want people to know we know the deal. And so when something happens, you'll hear somebody say, well, I've been saying that all along. That's what I've been saying from the beginning. Do you get easily embarrassed? If so, people and their perceived opinions probably define you. Or to use biblical language, you exalt the opinion of others to the point where you're ruled by them. Do you ever lie? Especially the so-called little white lies. What about cover-ups where you're not technically lying with your mouth? Lying and other forms of living in the dark are usually ways to make ourselves look better before other people. They also serve to cover our shame before them. If you ever ask someone, hey, were you able to get this particular task done? In my role as pastor, there are lots of tasks that we have so many willing servants, thank God for you all, who do so many things to make the ministry move forward. Without you, it simply would not happen. And from time to time, I have to ask, I have to say, were you able to get this done? And no is an acceptable answer. No, I, I didn't. And I'm going to get to it, or let's talk about how we can get it done. That's an acceptable answer. But it's amazing how often we feel we have to deflect why that didn't happen. Well, nobody told me. I didn't know that I was supposed to. What was and here we go. All because we're afraid of looking bad in front of others. Do other people 
make you angry or depressed? Are you jealous of other people? Do you avoid people? Almost done here. But think about diets. I mean, we really do want people to think well of us, don't we? Now, there are good reasons to go on diets. Heaven knows I have good reason to go on a diet. Health reasons would be a very good reason. So that I can be more able to serve the God who has given me this body and a purpose in the here and now for the years that he has supplied for me to carry out his work. That's a very good reason. Vanity is not one of them, though. And yet, the truth of the matter is, many of us are motivated by what we wear, how we look, by vanity. You know why it's called vanity? Because it has as its root vain, which means meaningless, empty. You say, we haven't really hit me yet. None of these describe me. I'm not fearful of any of that stuff. I never do any of that. I kind of doubt that. I think you're probably lying to cover. Let me ask you this one then. Have you ever been afraid to share your faith in Christ with someone? Because of what they might think about you. And the truth is that is true of every one of us, including me. And friends, it's not just people who are currently in our lives. We may be ruled by someone, by the memory of someone who was in our lives. We may be ruled by what they did to us. Or we may be ruled by what they meant to us. Perhaps someone victimized you in your past and therefore that person and their memory dominates you even to this day. Or it may be someone who was very good to you, that God supplied as a blessing and they meant so much to you that now that they are gone, you feel you cannot function. It's not just you all. Pastors, same thing. You know, when you're in a position where you were elected, in effect, to your position, and ostensibly can be unelected, you can, in a very acute way, feel the pressure to please people. I feel that. Every pastor feels that. If he says otherwise, he's being dishonest. We must resist that, but to be sure, we feel that. Maybe I should skip that passage because somebody's going to get mad. It's a temptation. Or do people really like this stuff I'm saying? Do they really like these sermons? You know? And so you feel like you have to get your validation from what people say. And the poor wife, she has to hear it every Sunday. So did I say anything coherent today? I saw a cartoon, one pastor saying to his wife on the way home on a Sunday afternoon, and he says, so how was the sermon? And she's finally exasperated, and she says to him, why can't you just do your best and trust God? And he says, it was that bad, huh? <laughs> every last one of us. And it's called the fear of man. In Proverbs 29 and verse 25, the Bible says this, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. We fear opinion, and it has all of these manifestations that I've gone through and many more. We may fear what they can do to us physically. We may be physically afraid. 
of someone else. But David, who was a warrior, admitted that there were times when he was afraid, but he said, I will not remain afraid. I will not be afraid. Because ultimately, ultimately, what can man do to me? We're going to see the antidote, the answer, the solution to this problem of the fear of man. It's how we revere how we see God. You see, when Proverbs 29 and verse 25 says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. The word fear is not just afraid. It includes that. But it means awe. It means reverence, revering people in all categories of all ages at every phase of life. We revere people more than we fear are in awe of. Esteem the Lord God. And so why are we talking about this today? Most of you know that we began five weeks ago in a series through the book of Hebrews. Last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And in that passage, you may recall if you were here, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is to be held in greater esteem than any person in the universe, bar none. Any who have come, are here, or will come in the future. Jesus Christ is God, and therefore He's to be revered. We are to be in awe of Him. We are to esteem Him above anyone. And that includes, in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, the one that the people who received that letter first would revere most, a man named Moses. We saw last week the career of Moses and why it's understandable that many would esteem and revere, fear Moses. But even Moses cannot be compared to Jesus Christ. And if Moses cannot be compared to Jesus Christ, there is no person in your life, whether in the past or now or in the future, who can hold the position that Jesus Christ is to hold of reverence and esteem and awe and fear. It's my hope in then teasing out what this fear of man, this esteem of man looks like in our moments together today, that many will be helped to identify how they are in effect being controlled by others. We're going to do something a little unusual today. I'm going to have you fill in some blanks. If you have a pen, the outline that was inserted in your program has some blanks for you to fill in. I'll put them on the screen as well. First thing we need to recognize is this, is that we are controlled. We are controlled by what we need. We are controlled by what we need. Now, notice carefully. You fill in the blank with the word need, but it's in quotation marks. Because there are many things that we convince ourselves that we need. That, in fact, we do not need. But we have been convinced by our culture. In particular, our psychobabble culture. You all know what I mean by psychobabble? Just psychological terminology used in the culture that has even infiltrated the church. And so, 
You have basic needs, we are told. You have needs for love. You have needs for acceptance. And on the list goes, borrowing from a man named Abraham Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Some of you will be familiar with that. And Maslow said, before you can really become what you were intended to be, all of these needs have to be met before you can be what he called self-actualized. All these needs have to be met. And Christians have bought into that. Now we use the need terminology in the church. And so pastors encounter people all the time, husbands and wives who come and say, I need my spouse to do this. And unless my spouse does this, I can't move on. I can't deal with life. I can't obey Jesus. <laughs> and friends, do you see what's happening? This person and what they do or fail to do has become more important than Jesus. Hmm. And so we revere them, we esteem them. I've actually had to tell people this in counseling. That spouse that you despise, you really fear more than anyone. I say, what? Fear him? Revere him? Esteem him? Yeah, he controls every waking moment. He controls your emotions. Everything you do or are unable to do is all tied to what he does or fails to do, whether he affirms you or not, whether he builds you up or not. Please understand, friends, we are controlled by what we need. What or who you need will control you. It will often cause you to lose control. You lose it. Because he or she knows how to push my buttons. You know what that means? They know where the buttons are. They got command. They got the remote. And they have control. We're controlled by what we need. So we need to define need very carefully. We're not only controlled by what we need, but the Bible teaches that what we need, again in quotes, these often fictitious needs, often needs that are foisted upon the church by those who do not follow our God or his book. These needs, often bogus, are really based on what we want. You see, that would be fine if our desires and our wants were pure desires and pure wants. But the Bible teaches something about our hearts such that our desires and our wants are not pure. They are not directed toward the end for which God gave us these faculties of desire. Rather, they are turned inward on ourselves. This goes back to our first parent, parents, Adam and Eve. You all remember? What did Adam and Eve want? Adam and Eve wanted... To be like God. Adam and Eve wanted to be in control. Adam and Eve wanted to make the rules. 
And because they wanted to be like God, they wanted to be in control, they wanted to, to make the rules, they were willing to sin against the God who made them. Their desire for control led them to directly disobey the command of God. Now, friends, you've heard me, some of you have heard me say this in other contexts many times. That it is the case that we can desire very good things, but we can desire them too much. And how do I know if I desire a good thing too much? I mean, all I want is for my husband to listen to me. All I want is for my husband to to affirm me and to, to cherish me or for my wife to do those things. That's all I want. Is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. Should he or she do that? Absolutely they should. And I want to be used as an instrument to help them do that. But hear this. Your well-being, your joy in Christ can never be tied to what they do or do not do. And you know you want this good thing too much when you're willing to sin in the absence of it. So many of us live in sin. In our attitudes, in our words, in our joylessness. Because our needs were not met. Because we desire it not for God's purposes ultimately. But we desire it for our own purposes. Which is the third point in your outline. You see the problem is. That what we want. Is not ultimately what God wants. What we want is what we want. I want this for me. It's not that I want this for God. It's not that I want this for God's glory. If that were the case, you could bring glory to God in the circumstance you are in right now with the person, persons that are in your circle of influence right now, no matter what they do. But if you fear man then you can't move forward. You can't be what Jesus has told you to be. You can't grow in conformity to the image of Christ until they. Why? Because ultimately we want it for us, not for Jesus. What we want, we want for ourselves. I'd like to spend the remainder of our time applying that, though. Applying that to various aspects of our lives and trying to give you some help with regard to how we can address this issue, this ubiquitous issue of the fear, reverence, awe, esteem of people rather than Jesus. I've titled this message at the top of your outline, People Fearing Gods. You've heard the phrase God-fearing people? I was at a city meeting one time for our parent church. We were looking to get approval to build our church on its current location. We had to get a special use permit because it's in a, technically in a residential area. And about 100 residents showed up to say, we don't want this church built there. I can still remember one lady standing up saying, look, we're all God-fearing people here. How, how does she know whether they're all God-fearing people? Ultimately, we were able to get approval, and the building is there, Thanks, thank God. But God fearing, people who fear God. But I've titled this message, People Fearing, and then notice God's is with a small g. 
Because that's what, in effect, many of us are. We are people-fearing little gods. We want what we want for our own purposes. And when it is not provided, it has become a need, a must-have. And when it doesn't happen, those people now have control over us. People revering, people esteeming, people fearing little gods. I put on the screen for you earlier Psalm 118 and verse 6 that says, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? But the verse actually has another very important phrase right at the beginning. It says this. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see, friends, it really does come down to, do you fear man or do you fear God? Do you trust man or do you trust God? Do you esteem man or do you esteem God? The Lord is with me. And I want you to notice the four letters Lord are all capitalized. That's on purpose. Because there are two words for Lord, translated Lord, in your Old Testament. Many translations, the NIV that we use included, use this convention that says... When Yahweh is the Hebrew word for Lord, it will be all capitals. When it's another Hebrew word, Adonai, it will be capital L and then small O-R-D. All capitals. This is a translation of the personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh who is with his people. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's the God that you have in Jesus Christ. His name, Jesus, is Yahweh saves. That's what it means. Jehovah saves. He's our personal God. He is with us. And because He is with me, I need not fear man. I need not fear what they can do to me. Why should I be controlled in my attitude, in my interior life, in my words by other people? This passage is quoted, Psalm 118.6, in Hebrews chapter 13, the book that we're considering over the next several weeks, and verse 6. And it says that we can say with confidence, the Lord is with me, the Lord is my helper, it actually says. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So in order to have that proper perspective, here's what we must do. We must understand what we really need. There's the stuff we think we need, and there's what we really need. Jesus spoke to this issue in Luke chapter 10. Many of you are familiar with the story in Luke chapter 10. Jesus had come to visit his friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha in a town called Bethany. And Mary was making preparation. She was busy preparing. Excuse me, Martha was busy preparing. Mary simply wanted to spend time at Jesus' feet, worshiping, revering, esteeming him. Martha was angry at Mary because she should be getting the stuff done. And then Jesus says to her, only one thing is needed. You know, friends, ultimately you need, you know what you need? You need one thing, and I need one thing. I need a relationship with and the ever-present 
help of the God who made me and who has rescued me from my sin. I need one thing, a, a, a relationship with my Creator and with my Redeemer, who is with me at all times and in all circumstances. Even in difficult circumstances that might involve danger, He is with me. And you have throughout your Bible people who recognize this. I need one thing. Think about in the book of Daniel. Do you remember what Daniel was told? Daniel was told, for one month, you cannot pray to anyone except to the king. You all remember that? And Daniel did what he always does. Now, I have no doubt that Daniel was afraid. But he did not so esteem and revere people that it kept him from obeying God. And so he did what he always did. And he looked to the east, he looked to Jerusalem, and he prayed in the name of the true and living God. He was put in a den of lions. You all remember that? You think he was afraid? But he revered God more than he revered men. He had three Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they too were willing to be cast into a fiery furnace because they feared God more than they feared men. And throughout the Bible and throughout church history, you have men and women who revere God more than they revere people, even in physical danger. And they're able to have the joy of the Lord, whatever those circumstances. And so Acts chapter 16 in your Bible. Some of Jesus' original followers are thrown in jail. And what does the jailer find them doing? Singing hymns in the night. Only one thing is needed. A relationship with your Creator and your Redeemer who is with you always. And our verse is Proverbs 29, verse 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but the rest of the verse says this, friends. But whoever trusts in the Lord, notice Yahweh, will be kept safe. And in Hebrew poetry, you often have what's called parallelism. One line is parallel to the next, and that's the case in these two lines. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but now parallel to that is this next line, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Let me show you the parallels. The first line talks about fear. The second line talks about who you trust. Ah, I will not revere man. I will trust my God in all circumstances. With my very life, with my attitude, with my well-being, no one else controls that. I trust my God. And who are we going to trust? Is it going to be man or is it going to be Yahweh, the Lord? The first line talks about fear of man. The next line is trusting the Lord. And what is the different result from both of those? One proves to be a snare. And the other, we are kept safe. We talk about someone being insecure. They don't have security. Or to put it another way, they don't feel safe, right? Isn't that what insecurity is? I don't feel safe talking in front of people. <clears throat> I don't feel safe being in the presence of other people. I always am insecure when I'm around other people because they have this power over me. 
Whoever trusts in the Lord will be secure. Will be safe. It doesn't mean nothing bad will ever happen to you. It does mean that you have the absolute trust, the absolute confidence that God will see you through whatever he takes you through. That's why insecurity can be defined this way. It's placing your faith. The word faith just means belief. Placing what you believe, who you trust in, what your hope is. Insecurity is placing those things in that which can be taken away. I invest my heart and my entire life and my well-being, my trust and my hope into people. Friends, can people be taken away? In possessions, in my job, in my career, in my health. All of which can, and not only can, will be taken away. Insecurity is placing your faith, your trust, your hope in those things that can be taken away. Security, safety, is placing those things in that which cannot be taken away. The world and its desires are passing away. But the word of the Lord endures forever, friends. Who will you revere? Who will you esteem? Who will you fear? God or man? So in Jeremiah chapter 17, this is what we're told. This is what the Lord says. Again, this is what your God says. This is what Yahweh says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. Some of you have been living in the wasteland of bitterness, and anger for years because your trust is in men rather than in God. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, but the passage goes on, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. Never fails to bear fruit. It's Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. So friends, what are we to do then? <clears throat> in our relationships with people. We know, at least intellectually, we are to fear, revere, esteem. Be in awe of God rather than fearing, esteeming, revering. Being in awe of men, we know that. But what am I to do in my relationships? Well, this is your take-home truth that I have for you in your outline. Here's what we need to do. We need to begin loving people more and needing them less. You see, what we've done is we've said, I need you to do these things for who? Moi, number one. But what we really need to do 
is see our relationships as not vehicles through which we get what we want, but rather as vehicles for us to bring glory to God as we love those people as Christ has loved us. That will trans- transform your relationships in your home, in your church, in your workplace. Let me plug two ministries that we have coming up, and I'm finished. Next week, we begin a series called Relationships, a Mess Worth Making. We're going to take 12 weeks, and we're going to delve into these sorts of issues. I encourage you to be here for our 11 o'clock hour next week. In January, our youth department is going to be doing for teenagers and for their parents a workshop called a Peer Pressure Workshop. We're going to point out for those teenagers, and we're going to invite teenagers from the community and from this high school to come to that workshop in order to see what God says about what peer pressure really is and what the answer truly is. And so be here next week and pray for that endeavor in January. Now, we're going to bow before the Lord. And friend, if you have never come to God through Jesus Christ, then you cannot know this reverence for the Lord about which the Bible speaks. You you can only know reverence and esteem for people. You must have a relationship wrought by the Spirit of God that causes you to fear Him above all else. How does that happen? You come to Him receiving the work that Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. You recognize, you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize what Christ did in dying to pay the penalty for your sin. Repent of your sin. Lord, I realize that I've been ruled by other people. That's a manifestation of the many manifestations of sin in my life. I'm a sinner. I want to go your way, not my way. That's what repent means. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow right now, you pray to him in your own words from your heart to God, asking him to forgive your sin. And to begin changing your life, he promises to do that. Let's bow together. Father, I thank you for the precious word of God that penetrates our hearts, that knows the thoughts and exposes the thoughts and the attitudes of my heart and of our hearts. I thank you for its ever-searching truth that sees what motivates me, what motivates us. And Lord, we are consumed very often with reverence for people rather than for you. Help us, Lord God, to recognize, acknowledge that. And help us then to follow the antidote that you have given in Scripture. Help us to realize that we have made needs where there is really only one thing needful. A relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer who is with us every moment of every day, no matter the circumstances. Help us, Lord, to repent in this sacred moment of the many times in which we have revered people as more important than you, as we have exalted them to the status of idols in our hearts that have replaced the true and living God, our Yahweh. I pray that right now there are people who are coming to Jesus Christ for the very first time. Oh, Holy Spirit, move upon their hearts and draw them to yourself for your glory. Lord, we thank you and we love you because you have first loved us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.